morning, let's uh, get into our Bible study. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will wander over to Galatians chapter 5 later this morning, but let's start in 1 Corinthians 13. This is a very familiar passage. If you've been in church any amount of time, you are, you are well aware of this chapter, a chapter that describes in depth love and what love is and how it looks. So it, it amazes me that when God literally gives us as much content as is found in 1 Corinthians 13, describing love for us, that Christians, I, I get the world is confused. They don't believe the Bible. They don't know the Bible. They haven't read this text, and they wouldn't want to read this text. All right, I understand that. Christians, how can they still be confused on what is love? How can a Christian not know the answer to what is love and how it should be displayed? How can Christians so, be so far off in the way they apply love to their spouse, to their children, to their friends, to their God, to, to the church, when God has given us the answer? It's because they don't take it seriously? Possibly. Because maybe they're the rare Christian who hasn't heard this preached? Possibly. Maybe they think that this is more metaphorical. I think that's unlikely. I think that the, the most popular reason of why a Christian would understand this text, know about this text, and refuse to apply this text is because it is so hard to do. It is not that we as Christians don't have the answers. It's the answers are difficult. And we just keep going back to default in how we treat our spouse, how we treat our children. We can have regret, and we often do. We can have guilt, and we often do. God can, can work on our conscience as he often does, but we just keep going back to what we've always done. And then we assume that God is going to fix all of our problems. We assume that God can give us truth, 1 Corinthians 13, how to love. We are not going to display that love in our marriage, but assume that God is going to rescue our marriage. It doesn't work that way. We assume that God has given us truth and how to love our children. We do not love our children in this manner, but assume that God is going to rescue our children from self-destruction. It does not work that way. I'm not telling you that marriages can't be successful in spite of ignoring 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to tell you children can't be raised and honor and follow God in spite of 1 Corinthians 13. But if they are, if children are growing up and loving God, even though you are not applying 1 Corinthians 13, that is not because of you, that is in spite of you. And a whole lot more kids end up self-destructing because of their parents, not finding success in spite of their parents. Are there the red kids who just, doesn't matter who you put in their life, these kids are going to have success? Yes, those, I've known those kids. I've met those kids. I've been the youth pastor to some of those kids. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter what adult tries to steer them away. These kids are just unique in that they are chasing after God, but they are the rare ones. Most children will go in the direction they are steered towards. And you as parents do more of that steering than anyone else. And so, I think a lot of us have forgotten just how powerful an impact love has on the lives of others. 
We've forgotten maybe because we've ignored the impact of love in our own life. We've forgotten because we have convinced ourselves that there are more important things in this world than love. And yet, what did Christ say is the greatest commandment? Love God. What is the second greatest commandment? Love others. So why are we saying there is something more important than love when Christ himself said the first two greatest things are love and love? Love God, love others. If you want your children to run towards God when they are older, then love them like God when they are younger. If you want your children to have a true, sincere, deep understanding of God when they are older, then show them a true, deep understanding of God's love when they are younger. Love is the foundation for your relationship with any human being. Love. Now, you cannot separate truth from love. You cannot separate righteousness from love because 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look through it together, gives you the definition that includes truth and righteousness, you know, right versus wrong. So don't think, well, I can love someone and ignore morality. I can love someone and ignore what's right. I can love someone and ignore discipline and correction. No, you can't because love includes all these things. So when I say love is the foundation, I don't mean truth is not important. Truth is part of love. If you love someone, you will live and tell them the truth. You will believe and hope for the truth. So let's look at this through the eyes of adults working with children, not just what are uh, the definitions, various parts of love, but how do they apply to children, teenagers and young children. So we're in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity... I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now, when it says tongues of men and of angels, that does not mean speaking in tongues. This verse is not referring to an angelic language that only the angels know and understand. And we as humans can speak it but don't understand what we are saying. This is hyperbole. And you'll see the hyperbole continues. If you look at verse 2 and on, you'll find that in this context, we are not stating that you could speak the language of angels, which I doubt, by the way, is English. I don't think the angels speak English, right? Whatever language they speak is not probably uh, English, or as some say, American. You know, there's no American language, but you get what I'm saying, right? So whatever language they speak, we don't know it. And I don't believe that we can speak it this side of heaven. I believe that the Apostle Paul is saying, even if when we spoke, we spoke like an angel. That when people heard us, they just were like trans, uh, uh, transformed to a higher level of, of uh, out-of-body experience because your, your communication is so amazing. And it almost lulls them into some you know, out-of-body uh, experience or state. He says, even if you could do that, but didn't love people, you would just be annoying to them. How many children are annoyed by their parents? All? Not all. No. I know a lot of children. I've known a lot of children who are not annoyed. They love their parents deep, deeply, are not annoyed by them. But there are a lot who are annoyed by their parents. Could it be, and I'm sure there's other reasons why that might be the case, could, could it be mostly verse 1 of chapter 13? The child does not feel loved by their parents, so they are just annoyed by their parents. As you know, I step into the realm of um, spiritual leader quite often. 
not to bash spiritual leaders. I have nothing against spiritual leaders. I am one. I step into that realm in my examples because I know it so well, because it's personal to me. And as I evaluate the human condition, I often evaluate the human condition as it plays out in leadership. And I have discovered that a lot of leaders are like verse 1, really good speakers, really good communicators, and a lot of people follow them because they just speak beautifully. And yet, if you look at the family of this spiritual leader, they are falling apart, which tells me something. That leader is failing in their love for their own family. And they are, they are gaining so much glory in the praise of men and women. They are gaining so much uh, power in that position that they have failed to remember the most important position they have ever received, and that is parent. And now they've placed leader of a church over parent of a family. Don't ever let that be said for you. Because your kids will be annoyed by you. Teenagers will be annoyed by you if they do not feel. It's not just knowing, feeling loved. If they don't feel loved by you, your 14, 18-year-old teenager will just be annoyed when you walk in the room. So much so when you walk in, they will walk out. In a Christian school, students will be annoyed by their teacher. Even if the teacher is a great communicator and the subject is presented in a way they can understand, the teacher will just be annoying to that student. Why? Because that student does not believe they are loved by the teacher. So they literally feel agitated in the presence of that adult. Parents, if your child feels agitated around certain adults... There could be other reasons. You need to delve into those. Maybe there's some trauma. Maybe there's something that was said or done. But the core problem is likely they don't feel loved by that adult. And so you need to address that. Is that adult healthy for your child if your child literally feels unloved by that adult? And are there some steps you can do to remedy that? Have a conversation with the adult is what I would do and say, look, my child just doesn't, my child thinks you hate him, okay? My child thinks you you don't like them. And the adult would say probably, well, of course I love them. Well, The problem is my child doesn't know that. My child doesn't feel that. And so they're agitated when they're around you, in your classroom, at the house, whatever it might be. Can you please take some steps in healthy, appropriate ways to show my child you care about them? And I I hope my child will see that, feel that, and some of that agitation will exit their life. But if you're the parent and your child's agitated by you, then this probably is your problem. The child doesn't feel loved by you. Think about it yourself. You're the person you love, right? Your wife, your husband. When are you most agitated by them? When, they, when you are upset with them. And your anger, your bitterness, your wrath has replaced your love that you felt the day before for them. And so the day before, they could walk around smacking their gums, chewing, you know, chewing gum, blowing bubbles. It didn't bother you, right? Now they do it today, and it just agitates you. The day before, they could take off their shoes at the couch, put them next to it, kick their socks off, and you're like, whatever, we'll you know, pick them up later. Today, they do it. It's like, pick those up right now. You're agitated by everything that they do. Because today, you don't feel loved by them, and today, you certainly don't feel like you love them. Today, you're angry with them. Today, they're angry with you. And so they cannot do right. That is what 1 Corinthians 13, chapter, one, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 is saying. That if you aren't showing active love and not feeling active love, then what you'll just see and feel and pass on to others is agitation, which often leads to anxiety. How can you eliminate agitation and anxiety from your life? Love people. Love them unconditionally. 
and how can you eliminate agitation and anxiety from your children's life? Well, there's other things that need to be done, but this is one of them. Help them, show them, teach them how to love others unconditionally. There will be less agitation in their life. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Again, hyperbole, right? No one knows everything. (laughs) But even if you did, even if you knew the answer to every problem and every question and have all faith, and you were the most faithful Christian, again, hyperbole, not possible, even if in every situation of your life there was complete faith and never doubt, even if you had all of these things and were essentially the perfect Christian so that you could move mountains, but you did not have charity or love, you are nothing. What does that mean? Empty. You're an empty shell. A lot of parents feel empty right now. A lot of parents have a family. They have a home. They have a car. They've, they've got all the things that, that the America, America dream, American dream has stated you should shoot for, and you've got these things, but you just feel empty. Your marriage. Uh, a spouse who's not sleeping around with other people, a spouse who is faithful to you, a spouse who comes home every night, a spouse who does their part in the relationship, taking care of the home and the children, but there's still an emptiness. By the way, that emptiness, if you don't take care of, often leads to some form of adultery, either emotional or downright physical, and you're actually sleeping with other people because no human being likes the feeling of emptiness. God did not design us to have emptiness in our heart long term. Adults don't necessarily fall into adultery because they like the, the, you know, purely the feeling that, that, that sex gives you outside of a marriage. They just want to fill a void, a lot of them. Now, there are some that are addicted, right? That's a completely different matter. But many of them just are empty inside, and they, they just, they would, they'll take anything over empty. They'll fill it with drugs. They'll fill it with alcohol. They'll fill it with, with promiscuity, whatever it takes. They don't care as long as it's not empty. The Bible says you could be the greatest Christian, have all kind of faith, and still be empty. You could know everything, be the smartest person in the world, and still be empty. These things don't fill you. What fills you? Love. So why is it that a lot of teenagers feel so empty? Evaluate. Think back. When you were a teenager, what was it that bothered you the most when you did not feel loved? What was it that caused you the most anxiety when you felt that your friends were talking behind your back, when you felt like a coach was, was choosing someone else over you? Uh, for many teenagers, that is the case. If there's not a strong bond of love at home, they're going to look for it somewhere else. If they can't find it anywhere else, they will be empty inside, and they will go into depression, suicidal thoughts. They'll embrace self-deception, and which will end in self-destruction. And it all started with there was no strong bond or fulfillment of love in their life. As a parent, one of the greatest gifts you can offer your child is love. Love will not only set them up for a healthy place now, it sets them up for success later. Stop trying to show your child how smart you are and instead show them how much you love them. If your child is empty inside and you look in their eyes and there's nothing there, I can tell you what's missing They don't feel loved. And you say, well, I love them. How can they not feel that way? Go back to last week. What did we talk about? The five love languages. It's not enough to love them in your language. You must love them in their language. Figure out how they feel loved. Make the sacrifice. Love them. And you will find that emptiness in their eyes begin to change to fulfillment. 
Because as I said last week, if they don't find it from you, they'll find it from someone else. And someone else will probably have strings attached. There will be motives behind their love, and they will use and abuse that relationship with your child for their own personal gains. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. You don't gain anything in this life if you give everything but love. You could be the greatest tither. You can be the greatest humanitarian. You could be the one who literally does give your shirt off your back to other people. Literally, you've done that. Like, you give them cars. You give them, ve- you give them, you give them um, clothing. You give them food. You give them money. You've done that your whole life. You are still nothing if you're not giving love. Well, Russ, you know, giving a car is love. No, there's other reasons why you might give a car. Russ, giving money is love. Nope, other reasons. Giving my shirt. Nope, other reasons. Many reasons why you might help someone aside from love. It needs to be love. And you know who will see that first is children. Children often, at a young age, children are easily deceived. There comes a point where children are very skeptical, preteen, teenager, and they are extremely hard to deceive. Like, they're skeptical of everyone and everything. And you may think, I'm a great parent. My child, my child trusts me. My child believes me. Yeah, because your child is literally young enough to believe there's still Santa Claus, right? So, of course, your child trusts you because they believe easily. Are you parenting in a way that when that child exit their stage of being naive, will they still trust you? That's the real test. Because anyone can deceive a five-year-old. They just aren't very smart. How about a 15-year-old? So parents, love. Now, how does that look? So as I started today, a lot of people know what I'm going to tell you. The issue is not new information. Oh, I just didn't understand how to love kids. I didn't understand how to love teenagers. No, the issue is what we're going to go over this morning is very, very, very hard. You want to do it right, you're going to pay a price. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you a lot. And to do it right means not a one-time deal here. This is not a contract you sign once and you walk away. You are locking yourself into a covenant With that person, with that child, with that teenager, with that spouse, that requires a lot of you all the time. That's love. And most people, they just don't have it in them. Why not? Well, they they were never shown what it looks like. They're not really sure how much benefit it brings because they never experienced that. Because they're so selfish, they love, they love themselves. And their love for themselves is so strong, it far outweighs any love they have for anyone else. If you want to love children, you must let go of yourself. You cannot embrace yourself and your child at the same time. You cannot embrace yourself and the teenager in your home at the same time. If you want to embrace your child, you must let go of yourself and open up your heart and arms to that child. You want to embrace that teenager, that adult son or daughter, you've got to let go of yourself. Stop loving yourself. Let go of hugging yourself and open up your arms and heart to that child, regardless of their age. But too many adults, they say, come here, let me hug you. But their arms are wrapped around themselves. And the child sees that. 
And, and all you do is, you know, you rest your head on their shoulder, right? Or you lean in and you touch them with your, with your own shoulder. And, and you say, here, I love you, son. I love you, honey. And you, t- you touch shoulders. And your child's like, well, that was stupid. That was pointless. They see through it because they see you over there hugging yourself. You got to stop hugging yourself. That's the hardest thing. That is the hardest part. By the way, it comes to marriage, same problem. A lot of men, I truly believe, love their wives. Why do their marriages fall apart? They're married to an adult woman who maybe you're not loving her in her love language, but she's an adult woman. She's smart. She understands that not everyone speaks her language. She understands her husband's not the brightest guy in the world and that, that he doesn't speak love the way I feel, but she still knows I love him. Why does their marriage still fall apart? She says, I know he loves me, just not nearly as much as he loves himself. Same thing. The man could say, I know my wife loves me. She just loves herself way more than me. It's way off balance here. And the marriage falls apart. I've talked to many people, and I've tried to warn them. There there was a couple years and years ago. I saw it coming before the husband saw it. I actually remember speaking with the husband. This is a long time ago. And I said, bud, you have got to to stop uh, living a selfish life. You're going to lose your wife. And he says, nah, she wouldn't leave me. And I said, yeah, she would, and she's going to. I, I can see it. You've got to open up to your wife and love her and stop loving yourself. I said, you're living selfishly. He said, no, it'll be okay. Two years later, she left him, served him papers, divorced. And you know what? I talked with the guy. He was still in shock. I was thinking, how can you be in shock? I literally told you this was going to happen. I told you you were loving yourself more than her. She's not going to stand for that. Now, some women would. This woman wasn't, <laughs> and I knew that about this woman. She wasn't going to put up with it for the rest of her life. Guys, stop loving yourselves. Open up your arms to the people God has placed in your life. Women, stop loving yourself and open up your arms to the people God has placed in your life, especially the children. So how does that look? Verse 4, suffers long. I like that word, suffer. It's a great word. It's a great way to start off this conversation of what love is. You suffer. You know, we've been misguided. We've been misinformed. We've been wronged by Hollywood. These young girls who listen to songs and watch movies about what love is described by the world, it's all good, right? It's all good. Even when it's bad, it's good. And so these young ladies grow up thinking of love through the lens of the world's definition. And they think, as soon as love causes me to suffer, I'm out, because this isn't love. Young men, they don't watch these movies nearly as much as girls, romantic movies. They don't love stories. They don't listen to the songs nearly as much as girls. But if they start dating the girls, the girls make sure that the guys get that definition. The girls, in some way, you know, are going to watch this movie with me. They have conversations. So these young girls are imparting on these young men who've never watched those movies because they're watching action movies or sci-fi or whatever. Uh, These young ladies are imparting on these young men what they've received from the world indirectly. Or it's just stated outright in, in, in conversations with friends what love is. And as soon as these young men think, oh, man, this relationship causes me to suffer, I'm out because this isn't love. And yet, what does God's word say? Love will cause you to what? Suffer. Now, I'm not saying to marry someone that literally drives you crazy. If you're still dating them, you know, we're, we're in a room now where that's not the case for you people. But look, if you, I'm not saying you need to tell your child, well, love is hard. You're going to suffer through it. So if you're dating someone, they're driving you crazy and you're suffering, that, that's true love. You know, marry them anyways. No, I'm not saying that. 
I am saying that even the best relationships will include suffering. Even the best connections you have with people will include some form of suffering. What does suffering mean? Suffering means hurt. Suffering means anguish, pain. And any parent who's had a child stray from God understands exactly what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the kind of suffering and pain where they are abusing you. That's not love. Abuse is not love. I am saying when you open up your heart to someone and connect with them on that deep level, that love level, their pain becomes your pain. That's suffering. You are now suffering not because that person abuses you, but because they are themselves hurting, and you've added more pain to your life because of theirs. And by the way, the more people you love, the more pain inevitably you're going to feel, which is why a lot of people keep their circle very small. That is the reason for a lot. Uh, the other reason is because they've been hurt so many times, you know, broken trust, backstab, that they just don't want to open themselves up to other people hurting them. But the other reason is the more people you engage in your life, the more people you connect with, the more pain you're going to feel. You just can only handle so much. Now, there are certain types of people who don't feel it as hard. It hits them, and they just bounce it to God, or it hits them, and they just bounce it off, right? Those people are rare. Most people, it hits them, and it sticks, and it sticks hard. But love says, I love you. And even though your choices cause me pain, not because of direct abuse, because that's not appropriate, but just the way you live your life, the choices you make, it causes me pain. I'm not going to stop loving you just because loving you hurts me. (laughs) I'm not going to stop loving you because you're self-destructing and it hurts me. I'm going to love you anyways. I'm not going to stop loving me because because I I see you making foolish choices as a 13-year-old, and and I'm concerned of the direction you're going. But I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to suffer through this with you. I'm going to love you through this. Now, I can't guarantee that at 18, loving you for five years, you'll turn out successfully, but that's my hope, and I will sacrifice to do my part to attain that hope. Obviously, the person you love also must make good choices. Your love won't change them, but your love can impact them to change. Love suffers long. If you love children, your children, you've already suffered you have a wife or a husband, you've already suffered. (laughs) Love is painful. But love is not abusive. So don't think it's healthy for the person in your life to abuse you. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. So love suffers long. Verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. And is kind. What is kindness? How is kindness displayed? In what form, in what way is kindness displayed? Its greatest form. What is it? Action. Can kindness be what you say? Sure. Words, kind words, I get that, yes. But kindness is displayed in its greatest form through action. Consistent, kind actions. And this is where we drop the ball. Because, to be honest, I think a lot of parents, I think a lot of moms understand, they, they understood from the beginning, love suffers. They knew that as soon as they started carrying their child for nine months, they were suffering before they even held their child in their arms. There was suffering involved. There was suffering bringing the child in the world to hold the child in their arms, right? Then there was suffering for three months later as that child's keeping them up all night. The mom understands suffering. The mom knows that. The dad kind of gets it. He'll get it more later. But this is where we really struggle, Kindness. It's hard to be kind, isn't it? Why is it hard to be kind? What's so difficult about being kind? Why is it so hard for us to have kind actions 
towards those we love? What's keeping it from being easy? What do you think? Pride. It's pride. Because kind actions are not about you. Kind actions are about the other person. Pride is about you. And so if you have pride in your life, you may not have made this connection before, but pride isn't kind. Pride doesn't evidence itself through kindness. Pride is not going to push kindness. Pride in your life is not going to say, I'm the greatest, I'm going to be kind to everyone. No, no. Pride is going to say, I'm the greatest, everyone needs to be kind to me. And and I'm better than them, and so I don't have to worry about how I treat them because they're below me, but they better treat me better because I'm above them. Pride is the enemy of kindness, you know? When I meet people that are just very kind, I've often realized pretty quick they are also very humble people. The kindest people I've met are usually the most humble people. Now, kindness is not the same as respectful. I've met some very prideful people who are respectful, right? Why? Because prideful people, they think respect's a big thing. So they will show respect because they've learned, they figured it out. If I want respect, i got to give it. So they made that connection, so they will be respectful, but that is not the same as being kind. And a lot of people who are prideful, they don't get that. They think it is the same. So they think, oh, I am being kind. I'm showing respect. No, you're not. No. Kindness is not respect. Kindness would include respect, but it's not the the equal to respect. Kindness are actions when shown towards others put their needs first. Kindness, through action, when offered to others, places their emotional state, their spiritual state, their physical state above your own, which is why pride doesn't like that. Because pride never places other people above themselves. Pride always places you above others. Respect, on the other hand, could still say, I'm better than you, you're lower than me, but I will, I will smile at you, I will shake your hand, I will talk to you respectfully, because I don't want to put up your mess, and I, I, I expect, in return, respect, because I gave it to you. Respect is often not unconditional. Respect is often conditional. I will give it if I receive it from you. But the moment I stop getting it from you is the moment I stop giving it to you. And respect isn't about what's best for that person. Respect is often wanting to get something out of that relationship or that conversation, right? When are children most respectful to the parents? When they want something, you better believe it. All right, so even respect has ulterior selfish motives attached. But kindness is unconditional, at least in this form. In this definition, God's word, it's unconditional, places the needs, physical, emotional, spiritual, of someone else above your own, and is done purely To reflect love requires humility. And if you struggle with humility, you're going to struggle with kindness. Seeketh not her own. There it is, right? (laughs) It doesn't place yourself first. We've talked in depth about that. Let's move on. Is not easily... Oh, I'm I'm skipping ahead. Verse 4. Doesn't envy. I jumped to verse 5. Excuse me. All right. So it's kind, and then envy's not. Love, if it's prideful is going to say, my life matters more than yours. My success is more important than yours. 
But love, if it's humble, by the way, the first one is self-love. Love, if it's humble and outwardly, will say, your success is my success. When you do well, I am happy. I want you to have more, not less. And it literally brings me joy to see the blessings God has given you, even if that, those blessings outweigh my own. That's, that's not a problem because we're part of the same team. Love doesn't envy. And again, if you struggle with pride, you're going to struggle with this one. This one's going to hurt you. It's going to be hard for you to see your spouse make more money than you. It's going to be hard for you to see your spouse have more benefits in their job than you. It's going to, even when those benefits literally benefit you, you're married, like the benefits are for the family, it still bothers you that, that they got them and you didn't. It bothers you that they've achieved a level in their career and you haven't, even though their level in the career benefits the whole family. How much more when they're not in your family, when it's a church member, a friend who's benefited and it doesn't affect you directly, how much more envious will you be? I can tell you right now, if you struggle with envy, I will tell you what you do not have, you don't have love. If it bothers you when your children are successful, you do not love your children like you should. And so you are empty inside. You are of no value. Well, when I say no value, you are, you are not attaining the value that you need to, verse 3. And verse 1, you're just annoying to them. You agitate them. If when your spouse is successful in any way and it bothers you, the problem is with you. You do not love them like you should because love does not envy. How can you change that? That's really hard to change, right? Well, first of all, humble yourself. A lot easier to change when pride is eliminated or at least overcome so it doesn't control you. Number two, here's what's happening. You are embracing deception. When you envy your spouse, you are deceived into thinking it's a competition. It's not. When you envy your spouse, you are deceived into thinking uh, you, you are not one. You are one. <laughs> so you've embraced deception. Humble yourself and eliminate deception. As a Christian, we are not here to say, I did the best. As Christians, we are here to say, I'm bringing God glory. And if God chooses to bless others through his glory, that's exciting to see. Stop looking at your friends through the eyes of deception. Stop looking at your spouse through the eyes of deception. Stop looking at your children through the eyes of deception. And it'll be a whole lot easier to no longer envy them. Charity, or love, in verse 4, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. So that's pride right there. Vaunt itself has the idea of placing itself before others. Puffed up has the idea of, of speaking of itself in, in um, prideful ways. If you are bringing pride into the marriage, let's follow, let's follow, connect the dots here. In Proverbs, the Bible says that before destruction comes what? Pride. All right. So if you have pride, where, where, what's the next dot you're heading towards? Destruction. So if you bring pride into a relationship... And that person now is connected with you in some way, especially marriage where you become one. You are now bringing them with you towards that next dot. Where are you bringing them? Destruction. If you're bringing the person and yourself towards destruction, what chance does your marriage have of success? Not much. Can people make it through destruction and come out the other side still married? Yes. Will they enjoy it? No. Will it be as good as it was? No. Will there be long-lasting effects? Yes. <laughs> How much more with our children who didn't choose us 
who were born into our family outside of their will? How much more likely are they to be bitter because their parents have brought them to destruction? A lot more likely. So if you have pride, not only are you bringing your spouse to that next stopping point of destruction, you're bringing your children there as well. Have you caught the theme yet? Parents, why are our families falling apart? Pride. Pride in your life. Pride in the life of your spouse. Pride in the life of your kids. It is being fostered. It is growing like mold. And it is destroying your home. And you are going from one stop of destruction to the next stop of destruction to the next. And you feel like your family is just in a series of, of uh, destructive chaos spiraling downward. And it's, you feel like that because that is what's happening. And that is happening because you and your spouse are not eliminating pride in your life. You have embraced deception thinking everything's okay. No, it's not. If pride is there, it's not okay. I don't care how you justify it. I don't care what name you call it. I don't care who you blame for it. If pride is in your marriage, if pride is in your home, you have been heading towards destruction, probably already stopped there multiple times, and will continue stopping there. Eliminate pride as best you can. At least don't let pride control you. Because can you ever eliminate it completely? Probably not. Not this side of heaven. But at least don't let pride be the the, the driving force in your relationships. Humility. It's not enough to be humble parents. A lot of kids still themselves head toward destruction, even with humble parents. But it sure is a great start. And you can't love people if you have pride. Why? Because you'll love yourself more. Verse 5, does not behave itself unseemly. Love doesn't act in a way that is shameful to others. I'm not going to do things that would shame you if I'm around you. I may be okay with them. I may feel fine about them. They don't bother me one bit. If I know it shames you, I won't do it. Why? Because I love you. Because I care about you. You know, parents often joke with their kids and harass their kids and, and kind of mess with them in public. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the, the gentle, you know, jossing and, and uh, you know, like kissing them on the cheek in front of their friends kind of thing. I'm talking about like true shame. Like they, they literally feel like they are less of a person because of what you just did to them or around them. You've brought shame in your life. And by the way, if your joking has gotten to that level, you've taken it way too far. If your child now feels shame, Maybe you think it's not a big deal because you're just a jovial, jokesy, joking type of person. But if you're bringing shame to the soul of your child, you got to stop. You, you may be saying, well, I want to show them what the real world is like, and I want to bring them out of their box. Well, there's other ways to do it than shaming them. Because love doesn't act shameful. It doesn't bring shame to the one that you love. doesn't act in a way that is shameful towards the one you love. Now, there are situations where someone could be shamed and, and the reason they feel shame is because they don't believe the truth of God's word. For example, you bring a child to church, you worship, you raise your hands, and your child's like, Mom, put your hands down. You're embarrassing me. Ah, you know, it's so embarrassing when Mom raises her hands. That shame is not, not a scriptural shame. In fact, that would be close to David and his wife, Michael, where David was singing and dancing, remember, bringing the ark back into the city, and David's dancing in front of the ark, and Michael is like, man, you're shaming us, David. You're the king. Act like it. And David basically told her and said, hey, I'm king, sure, but I'm a servant of God, and God is amazing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship him openly and unashamedly whether you like it or not. And he called her out on it. 
So I'm not saying that anytime your child is shamed that you should adjust. I am saying that when your child is shamed, it has nothing to do with truth or you living truth or you worshiping God. Uh, if it has to do with the way you act outside of what is right, then you need to rethink what you're doing because shame should not be a part of love. Number verse five, seeks not her own. So again, this is three times now where pride is dealt with in three different ways. By the way, did you recognize that pride doesn't always look the same way every time? Let me, I'm actually going to end with this. I don't have time to keep going any further. We'll complete this text. Not next Sunday. I'll be out with the marriage retreat, so the Sunday after. But a lot of people think, I don't have pride because I never put my needs before other people. Well, that's only one way of showing pride. There are other ways of showing pride. Someone else may say, well, I don't have pride because I actually do think that I'm lower than people. I really do think that I am of less value than people. Oh, well, that may be false pride, first of all, but also there are other ways to have pride than just thinking you're better than someone. I don't have pride. I never boast about my accomplishments. Okay, there's other ways to display pride aside from boasting. So just in these two verses, we've seen three different types of pride. And I'm, I'm pretty sure can't say confidently without a doubt, but I'm pretty sure that, that these, let's say there's three people, each of them displaying their the pride in different ways. So in verse four, um, the first one, vaunting itself. So putting themselves above others. Literally, uh, there's, there's some dessert. There's, there's no one else. Around, uh, there, 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 there's only one piece and there's five people. This person says, I'm going to take that piece for myself, right? I deserve it. Uh, I'm above you guys. So I'm going to take that piece and justify it in their mind, whatever, because they want it, and in their pride, they think they deserve it. All right, so that's that one kind of person. The second kind of person, puffing themselves up. This is the person who is, is bragging about themselves and always talking, like, oh, I don't want that piece. You guys can have it. But let me tell you the story about the time I, right? So they wouldn't be the ones to take the last piece of dessert, but they surely would be the one to tell the stories of themselves that make them look great all the time. Two different people, two different types of pride. The third one, in verse 5, seeks her own. So, you know, similar to this idea of the, of the dessert, yes, I get that. But also, it's like in every way they think, what do I want? Every action, what do I want? What do I need? Every time. These three people showing three different types of pride would probably all say, oh, that person's prideful, that person's prideful, but I'm not. Why? Because in their pride, their form of pride, they have embraced the deception, isn't a problem. But your form of pride is a problem. You're prideful, I'm not. And all three would probably call the other two prideful while justifying their own saying, not a problem. There are other ways pride displays itself. Not just these three. And so don't think you are without pride just because you don't display it in the same way someone else who obviously has pride does display it. Any form of pride in your life destroys. Humble yourself, and automatically you will see your relationship with people, spouse, children, you will automatically see it improving. Let's pray.